Hello and welcome. It's On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well with creative people who have a lot to say. We welcome back a good friend, Larry Ruttman, who spent a lot of interesting works, including Voices of Brookline, The Oral History of an American Hometown, American Jews and America's Game, Voices of a Growing Legacy in Baseball, another baseball book, My 82-Year Love Affair with Fenway Park, From Teddy Ballgame to Mookie Betts and his memoir, Larry Ruttman, A Life Lived Backwards, which also happens to be the name of his podcast that I am so happy to help him produce. But Larry's here to talk about his latest project, quite an undertaking. It's called Intimate Conversations Face-to-Face with Matchless Musicians. And at 91 years plus, Larry Ruttman shows no signs of slowing down. So let's get together with him and chat a little bit about his latest project, Intimate Conversations. Let's have one right now about music as we take the adventure together on mic. Larry and I have done a lot together. He's been a guest on this podcast in the past talking about uh, the book about Jews and baseball. But today, Larry, Intimate Conversations, face-to-face with matchless musicians. Congratulations, a tour de force. Well, I don't know about a tour de force, but it certainly uh, was an odyssey, as I call it, because uh, first of all, I wrote the book, and then it came to pass that I produced the book itself, which you see in front of you as a self-published book, and now I'm hoping to have that book published by a major publisher. And I think the book has a lot of merit. And um, it's been a real education and a real experience to not only write but produce it. And I learned uh, a lot about publishing and a lot of what a publisher has to go through to assemble the photographs and to assemble uh, the index and all the things that go into a book. You said education your education of this subject was enhanced, but I would automatically think this is textbook material for a Berkeley College of Music, New England Conservatory, because it's so in-depth about musicians and different kinds of musicians, many of them in the classical realm. It's just so deep. When did you start the project? Yeah, probably five years ago. That's it? Looks well, like Well, I started the project when I became a fan of classical music. I mean, <laughs> I you know, I well, to, you know, Jordan, let me put it this way. I wasn't a big fan of classical music, but I bought one of those albums maybe when I just not just before I got married. I was around 30. One of those albums, you know, the 10 best composers ever and the masterworks of the great composers, Beethoven, Mozart, this that and the mm-hmm. other. So I bought this and I sat down to listen to a few and one of the first ones I listened to was Mozart's 21st P- Piano Concerto in C major. That's the one they call the Elvira Madigan. Oh, yes. Right. Where right. the second movement is so beautiful that when he first played it to the Viennese audience, because he was a great pianist as well and organized his own concerts and sold tickets for them, or the tickets were sold, and he was very popular in Vienna. And um, so that uh, when it was played, they, they wanted it repeated because they liked it so much, the second movement. So I listened to this concerto, and I said, my God, that really is beautiful. I never heard anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that he, uh, but I knew from the liner notes that he'd written 27 piano concertos. So I said to myself in my stupidity, I said, well, 27, I mean, the guy died at 35. Um, yeah, a lot of them must be schlock. No. And every single... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mozart never wrote anything that wasn't at least good. But most everything he wrote was a masterwork. And so memorable and and still 
present today. It's it's brilliant. And that brings up a, a point about the book that I wanted to start with, really. Every one of these conversations, and we'll talk about a few specific ones, just about every one features the muse that influenced them. Was that your idea to ask that question of each one? Yeah. Were you surprised by some of the answers? Sometimes. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into it then. First of all, let's give credit where credit is due. You're the man who wrote the thing and did the interviews. But you got a beautiful lady helping you with some illustrations. Let's talk about her for a second. Well, Holly Sulo is an unusual person in many ways. And um, the reason that I, um, I – I knew that – I think illustrations add a lot. Um, photographs, of course, do. But illustrations also, uh, if they're imaginative, um, I, I add a lot. Now, take a look at the cover of the book you're holding. So she did that cover. I gave her the some of the ideas, but she fleshed it out. And take a look at the back. The back of the book mm. uh, is uh, letters to me, handwritten, handwritten, unbelievable, by famous composers, John Harbison and uh, Robert Joan Levin. Tower. Uh, yeah. Joan Tower is the, probably the top. Matthew O'Coin. Right. He's wonderful. And Matthew became a really close friend. He's an absolutely terrific guy. He's in Houston this weekend conducting the Houston Symphony Orchestra in this city where everything, as he describes well, it in a letter, is big. <laughs> He's conducting Verdi's uh, La Traviata. If you're not a musician, you'll like it, you'll love it. But if you are a musician or interested in music, it's such insightful stuff about how the process works and how they came about. You start with composers, and you mentioned Mozart. There's a picture of him right there at the very beginning before we start. And then you go to conductors, and we'll talk about some of those, including some of Boston favorites, instrumentalists, and even a section called Beyond Genre. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jordan, how that uh, title came into being. It was originally called Crossover, but Renee Fleming, who heads the section, that beautiful soprano, mm. probably the best soprano of our time, didn't like that title. And she has done some crossover work, as well as great opera work and great recital work. So that we had to search around for another title. So I asked Eden McAdam Summer, who's the head of the improv department over at the New England Conservatory, who was in the book herself, mm -hmm. but a brilliant girl, absolutely, a lady, and uh, very talented. If she could think, well, she came up with four titles inside of a half an hour, <laughs> and one of them was Beyond Genre. And I, I loved that one, and I put it up to Renee Fleming, and she loved it. So I said, okay, Renee, it's beyond genre. And she had made it, made the right title a condition of her appearing. And then she said, and I had used a picture of her, and she said, I'm going to send you my favorite picture in the whole world of myself. And uh, her agent, or the man who represented her, sent the picture. And if you look at the picture of her in the book, she looks so stunning. Yeah, she's a beautiful lady. Oh, beautiful. And and uh, so that's how the picture got in there, and that's how Beyond Genre got in there. Interesting thing is there are so many people of foreign people from Japan, Korea, uh, certainly people from all over. Extra challenge for you to, to connect with these people? Was language a barrier in some cases? No, not really. Was it a challenge? Yeah, I love challenges, and um, I love to meet people from other countries. Don't forget a lot of these people come to Boston at one time or another. And um, I think that Anne Sophie Muder, I saw her up at Tanglewood, one of the great violinists in the world. 
maybe the maybe the greatest composer, female composer now is Unsuk Chin, who grew up in poverty in Korea and now is considered a, a great, great composer and a fascinating lady who whom I met uh, when at the hotel she was staying when she visited the the Boston Symphony, they did a premiere of one of her uh, one of her creations. And we didn't finish our conversation, so in order to create her article, we carried on transatlantically, so to speak, for a year or more until and it's about it's the most technical of the articles. But you know, so one thing I strove for, and I think you suggested this uh, uh, yourself, is that I wanted this to be understood by ordinary people. Mm. I didn't want to write technically. I really can't write technically because I'm no expert on all the musical terms. My approach to this book, uh, Jordan, was that musicians are human beings. And I approach them all horizontally as human beings that, you know, that I had as much right being in this world as they do. Mm. And, you know, we all, and I got along with them. Many became great friends and what I wanted to create was a book where people would feel they were looking over our shoulders and listening in on a converse, not an interview. I, I distinguish what's in this book. An interview is one thing. A conversation is another thing where the person who's asking the questions is also partaking of the elements of the conversation and making his own comments. And that was borne out when the indexer said to me, and she's an expert, she was once the president of the Index Indexing Society of America. She said, you know, Larry, you gotta be indexed in this uh, in this book. I said, I do. I said, why? Because you have a million ideas that you presented to them during these conversations. And just like I went through all of these people in the index, take a look at the index. I know, I've I've looked at it. It's it's amazing. For instance, Johann Sebastian Bach. There are twenty-five to thirty references. I mean, just and it goes on and on like that. Samuel Beckett. I'm just looking in the bees. These are all the references here. You reference radio stations, historians, Daphne and Chloe. I mean, you got it all here, man. Well, you said earlier in this interview that this book could be used in school. That's exactly my point. I it, think you're right. I think it could be course material. It could be read from from K-8 or so all the way up to graduate courses, uh, either as a an idea for a course, but more likely as a reference work to be used as a course proceeds in a lot of different ways, because I don't know that I've seen another book that gets at well-known musical people uh, in, a, uh, in a conversational way to reveal their deepest thoughts about what they do, whether they play or create or what it is. So that, um, you know, in my mind, I didn't know it was going to be this kind of a book, but I think it's a very unusual book. We're talking with Larry Ruttman, who's written Intimate Conversations Face-to-Face with Matchless Musicians. I think you really wrote it because you love this stuff and you couldn't wait to find out what it's all about and, and get to know these people. Well, I, I would. I, I wrote at the end in my afterward why I love music so passionately. I woke up in the morning at 2 a.m. one morning. No, no, I didn't wake up. What, what I did was at 10 o'clock... I thought I'd listen to some opera. Well, one thing led to another, and I was listening to various things in three or four-minute segments for four hours. And I was so in such a state of pleasure at two in the morning 
I was thinking to myself, this is why I love this stuff so much. Yeah. So I, I wrote at the in the afterward, I wrote a little essay of about a page, why I love music. Let me read the last paragraph or two. As great as I knew sopranos Rene Fleming and Joyce DiDonato are, I discovered on this night that each in their own way is bigger than life, that each has a talent, spirit, and understanding of life which inspires good thoughts in fraught time or any time. This experience in a greater or lesser intensity has happened to me every time I listen to music, especially since age 30, you said that, when my musical horizon broadened to include Mozart, Beethoven, and their many brethren composers. Music is music, and I get the same thrill and meaning, whether I'm listening to Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, The Boss, or Robert Schumann, Sergei Rachmaninoff, or George Gershwin. Couldn't agree with you more, by the way, with all those. I'll read the last part. Yes, he's pointing at me. I'll read it. I'll read it. There's no other way than these words to try to convey to you why I believe, as many musicians and other people do, that music is life and that we could not and would not live without music in one form or another. Don't all people experience music? Wasn't music here when man arose? Won't music exist when man ceases to exist? Wasn't music here when the earth cooled and life began? Won't music be here and there when the earth disintegrates? Tell me something, Jordan. Let me turn the table and ask you, uh, because you're a you know an intelligent uh, guy who thinks as well as feels. Um, and now you've heard a, a few remarks from me about what I think the book is. That I think it's uh, it's not interviews; it's conversations, so forth and so on. What do you do? You think the book is unusual? Am I kidding myself? Do you no, think? I, I think it's terrific in the sense that it offers an insight into these people. Generally, you see from afar. I did want to mention the one that really struck me was the chapter seventeen, Aiko Onishi. Aiko Onishi. Is it pronounced Aiko? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm my Japanese. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, she's a very uh, dignified, beautiful lady, but he had a story that makes your hair curl. She was living in Japan during the raid on Tokyo, the firebombing of Tokyo. Yeah, in, in March before the war ended mm -hmm. uh, of 1945. And went on to have a great career as a uh, musician. Her mother had studied piano at the New England Conservatory, so she had connections in this country. Wonderful lady. She wrote a book on pianism. She was famous as a pianist, more famous as a teacher of the piano. Um, her her students love her so much that a lot of them come back to see her from distant points every year. Um, she is a person who has won the love of many people simply by being a great person and a committed musician. And she, when she talks about mm -hmm. music, she talks more eloquently than I do because about how much music has means in her life. But go, go ahead. You were going to ask me something. I was going to ask you about conductors because I know a few of them worked with Keith Lockhart a lot and people of that nature, Boston Pops conductors. But there's something about these individuals. Now, thankfully, some women are getting a chance to conduct major orchestras. They are in some ways the general of the, the army, admiral of the navy when they're up there. What did you notice about the conductors, anything about their personality that stands out as, as a general rule? Well, I think in order to be a conductor, you've got to have some sense of self. I mean, I don't think a person who is retiring or shy is going to make a great conductor. On the other hand, it, he doesn't have to be a showman in his, in his social life. I mean, 
Um, there have been conductors who are quiet and studious and others like – I mean, Leonard Bernstein, he was a great conductor. And he was – you know I, you know how colorful he was. Oh, my goodness. And they used to chide him because he, uh, he was so uh, – uh, he made so many gestures. And this, I thought he was absolutely wonderful. Uh, he was so much fun to watch. You, you interviewed Charles Dutois. Charles Dutois is an amazing person. Now, he, he's been canned in this country because of his sexual misadventures. But Charles Dutois, who grew up in nothing circumstances mm-hmm. in Switzerland, and early on um, got together with, uh, with people who became great conductors themselves and learned from them. And now, he, he if you looked at, at his Wikipedia article and how many prizes he's won and how he has been recognized uh, and the things he does. He's a great conductor of any music. And when he has to command a huge symphony orchestra and a huge chorus uh, in some pieces like uh, that have been composed uh, by uh, people who do that sort of thing, uh, he's absolutely keeps everything together. It sounds wonderful. And um he no, I think I think he's he's my pick. Yeah, he's right? one of the the elder statesmen too, isn't he, Larry? Oh yeah, he's he's in his early eighties, mm-hmm. and he he married. Well, it's not his first marriage. His first marriage was Martha Rogerich, who's one of the great pianists in the world. They're still very friendly, um, and uh, now he's married uh, to Chantal Schuillet, who's from Canada and was a great violinist. Played with the Boston Symphony. She gave up her career to be with him. She's much younger. And do you know something about Charles de Weathers that's amazing? He has visited every country in the world. That's a pretty good feat. I don't think uh, very few, uh, maybe an, an ambassador from some State Department office has done it, but I don't know anybody else who has. So I asked him. I mean, you know me. I ask questions that shouldn't be asked. Yeah. I said, were you scared in any of these places? He said, well, he told a story about um, one of the African countries in the Horn of Africa, the one where the pirates come from. Uh, uh, Somalia? Yeah, Somalia. And he said that uh, he was told not to go to a certain place, but he was going to go to that certain place. But halfway there, the guys were on the road with guns and this and that. So he made up something about he didn't feel well, could he be taken back to the, to the <laughs> hotel? Because he really got upset. He thought he wouldn't be conducting symphony orchestras anymore. Oh. Um, but he's And he speaks with a heavy French accent. Now, I ran, I ran into trouble because I wasn't feeling well, and I let what, one of my associates um, write up what he had said, and they couldn't understand. And that got me in trouble with Charles, who said, this isn't accurate. So I listened, and I could understand him very well, because even though he speaks with a heavy accent, He's, he's a very good English speaker, actually. And it was a terrific interview all about his travels and his beliefs about music and so forth. Classical music, quote-unquote, is still being composed today. We don't think of it. We think of it as the dead masters, right? But uh, it was composed in through the 20th century. One of my favorites is Samuel Barber. You have some of the current composers of our time still writing music that you could put into that classical family. Well, Matthew O'Coin is an example of that. I mean, he's a wonderful composer. They call him the Mozart of our time. By the way, he's a terrific guy. Um, the first time I met him, we sat outside the Gardner Museum after he had rehearsed uh, uh, the orchestra there for a, 
for an opera that he had written that was going to be done at the Brooklyn Academy where they seat 2,500 people. Matthew and I sort of really connected in that first two-hour conversation amid the smell of uh, marijuana and all the rest of it. And he, you know, this was like three, four years ago. And Matthew would just, I said, Matthew, people are going to be interested in this when you're my age and I'm long gone. What was Matthew O'Coin, who's so famous, and he's, he's world famous already, like when he was 29 or 30 years old? And he was just so congenial, upfront, friendly, that we, you know, I I, I felt very, uh, what's the word about when you feel like an uncle to somebody? Avuncular. Yeah, avuncular. I began, you know, I developed an avuncular feeling. And to this day, we write to each other, and he's, uh, I, you know, I feel, the guy has an IQ of 160. I mean, he's genius-level IQ. Mm. I mean, he's, he's a great writer. He's a great composer. He's a great conductor. He's a terrific pianist. Uh, he does a million different things. And it's fun to be friends with a guy like that. And um, so that... Um, but the music he writes, and his last opera was produced six or eight times in December by the Met. Um, so he's, he's, he's there. He's arrived. You could listen to it, and it you know, doesn't sound like Beethoven or Mozart. It's modern modern music. And, uh, One more note on that. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I have a feeling that in 100 years, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, they'll all still be heard and celebrated. I don't know if the current uh, Generation X or Z music of today, call it what you will, will be around much, let alone 100, maybe even 30 years from now. We're still playing the oldies from the 50s, Elvis and the Beatles and all that. But I don't know if we're going to see long-lasting music from this era. Well, Jordan, in your style, you've hit upon a big question in music. What is going to uh, persist and exist? Now, John Harbison is probably the top American composer right now. He's been at MIT for years, lives in Cambridge. He's a wonderful guy, and he's the first story in the book of about 30 pages because I talked to him for a long time and he was very cooperative. So we hit upon a number of subjects. I have to say that these conversations, as I put it, Mm. have touched on many subjects. He doesn't think classical music is going to last. His music or anybody else's music, including Mozart and Beethoven, much more than a hundred or a couple of hundred years. Um, Most musicians that I spoke to do think that the masters, as you call them, that their music will survive. And I think so, too, because I say to myself, this stuff is so fantastic to listen to and is so meaningful. I mean, like Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, I mean, he understood life so well and he was able to get it into his And and the music's been insinuated into pop culture and to commercials. I mean, I, I don't agree with Harbison on this one. He's brilliant, but I don't agree. I think it's going to be around. It's it's had 300 years of testing, and I think it still passes the test. Well, look, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the let's face it, the audience for pop music is tremendous, and the audience for classical music, by comparison, is minuscule, so that uh, what do you make of that? Um, you can't, uh, you know, you can... There are people who love who go to Boston Symphony who go to other classical venues, but uh, you know, I think the mu- I think classical music is more meaningful, more powerful, 
more uh, more uh, in the mind, more testing. Well, yeah, and more meditative, definitely. And and the fact that it's not, for the most part, except for opera, there's not a lyric line to these themes. They stay with you, uh, you know, in a good way, not an ear wick way, but a good way. Before we do a final promo for the book, and we will, let's also promo your podcast that I have the joy of working on with you. It's a lot of fun. It's called A Life Live Backwards. Tell everybody what it's all about. Well, I think a podcast is a wonderful thing, especially working with you, Jordan, because, you know, both of us are reasonably articulate people. You ask the right questions because, you're, you know, you know things uh, that a lot of people don't about various subjects. So I find that working with you is very comfortable. As I've said before, I trust you so that when you, when you divert or go into another subject, I don't worry about it because uh, a lot of times you're going to take me on a ride that I wouldn't otherwise go on, like when we talked about acting. Now, I didn't know that that would become the subject of a whole podcast and Shakespeare and all the rest of it. So I don't know where it's going to go, and I love it that I don't know where it's going to go. But I know that we do it often enough so that a lot of my ideas are going to get out there and my experiences and and yours too. Well, it's called A Life Live Backwards. It's your life that we're exploring. But in that 91 years plus, there's so much meat on the bone that I can have fun with. And, uh, and, and some of the topics are quite serious and some of the topics are just fascinating. You know, you and your beautiful bride escaping danger in the jungles. <laughs> your friends, that number in the thousands. And it's really a lot of fun. I hope people do check it out. By all means, I recommend it. And uh, not just because I work with Larry, but A Life Lived Backwards. Go to Larry Ruttman, R-U-T-T-M-A-N.com, and you can you can check it all out there. And before we close, intimate conversations face-to-face with matchless musicians. I said it's a tour de force. It's a heavy, listen to this, folks. Wow. It's a heavy tome, but it's so well done. And the writing is, is as usual, 100% Larry. It's terrifically done. And your hope is that a big publisher might want to talk to you about it and pick it up? Is that the hope right now? You still? know, that's the idea that, um, that um, rather than presenting a top publisher with an idea and presenting them with a book, and here's a book that already has an index of 30 pages, 55 illustrations, all being full-page illustrations, uh, a, a text that uh, that the book is about 450 pages, um, a, a group of musicians that is certainly uh, represents the top of the the field, world renowned, world renowned, absolutely. So, in any event, um, and and maybe as we've been discussing, it has a point of view that few books have, which is basically a layman talking music. With top musicians not making a fool of himself, I you, hope. <laughs> no, you didn't. Well, it's available, obviously. People should buy it. It's an independent publication now, available at Amazon and elsewhere. Intimate Conversations. You can go to Larry's website, LarryRutman.com, to read all about it, as well as your other series of books. And you're all over the map with great topics, baseball, culture, history, all kinds of cool stuff. So if there's a college professor in the Boston area or anywhere who's teaching music, he or she ought to get in touch with you. This would make a great textbook. Yeah, we're working on that, as a matter of fact. And uh, do you know, Jordan, this is very interesting. Thank you very much now, now for that plug, and I pre- and you're so good at it. You've done it a lot of times, and I appreciate it. Of the people that I in, of the people in this book, 30 of them, more than the 21 
musicians, but other people, collaborators, so forth and so on, teach mm. so that um, there's a you know thirty, so that there's a uh, that there's a whole group right there that could use this book in their courses, and we're we're working on that happening. Guest lecturer Larry Rutman, I can see it now. <laughs> the author of Intimate Conversations. It's always fun to hang out with you, my friend, and ageless and wise beyond anyone's years. And you also have something that's very special, and that's a sense of curiosity. You love to learn. I do. And that's why we love to have you, because you're teaching us a lot. Thank you. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, Jordan, so much. Larry Rutman. Go to his website, L-A-R-R-Y-R-U-T-T-M-A-N.com. Find out more about his latest book, Intimate Conversations, Face-to-Face with Matchless Musicians. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing the podcasts, to everyone at Chart Productions. Find out about my memoir, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, along with all kinds of other fun stuff at jordanrich.com. And don't forget your ratings and reviews for this podcast go a long way in increasing the audience numbers. So thanks for downloading and subscribing. Till next time, this is Jordan as always saying, be well so you can do good. Take care.